This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Horror in unfamiliar settings. Bellingcat. Dramatic interaction. And a French werewolf. Okay, Ken, we've been summoned, I mean, invited, to attend another gloriously gloomy party at Castle Slogar. Remember, keep your eyes peeled and your reflexes ready. The Slogar's festering festivity involves more cleavers than confetti. Where did everyone disappear to? Did they all get ludicrously lost in the hedge maze again? I think I heard muffled laughter, or was that sobbing? It's coming from behind that door. Of course it's locked. Just our luck. Hold your skeletal horses, Ken. Look at the floor. The tiles have markings, just like in that puzzle game book I have. Unhappy birthday at Castle Slogar. Aha, found the book. How will a book about a birthday gone wrong help us find a party that might not even exist? Well, in Unhappy Birthday at Castle Slogar, things go awfully awry during Melissa Slogar's latest ninth birthday party. Guests are lost and Lord Slogar is missing. Sound familiar? Whoa, that's eerily similar. Wait, the book has a map. Oh, but it's blank. How do we navigate with that? Patience, Ken. The book describes each room and the exquisitely eerie obstacles you have to overcome. You can even use a special website to check your answers, get hints, and unveil the map as you explore. So we need to solve a puzzle in this room to get to the party in the next room. You're catching on now. Let's see. I remember the foyer puzzle involved. And then you... And just my... And voila! Look, the password! And the door! It's unlocked! Now let's go party like it's 1899! Hey, uh, can I borrow that puzzle game book? No way! It's mine! But you can get your own copy of Unhappy Birthday at Castle Slogar from Atlas Games at atlas-games.com slash b-d-a-y. The rattle of 13-sided dice, the thump of iron core miniatures, the crunch of Takis, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton live at Budokan welcome you to the tile-floored confines of the Gaming Hut, where beloved Patreon backer Jamie Twine asks, When you are running horror in a world that's not standard Earth, what are the best ways, without just breaking the atmosphere too often by telling the players, to signal stuff that's weird but normal for the setting, rather than stuff that's weird and you should probably run away from, hide from, fight against? Weird and threatening, I suppose, is how we could put it. For background, Jamie is running the Yellow King role-playing game, and some of the playing group had trouble with the wars, despite it being one of their favorite chapters, because when you have mechanical spiders dragonfly ornithopters with stained glass wings and bullets that inflict psychological effects, but they're normal weird, but self-propelling anti-vehicle hedgehogs and howling mines are weird weird. Robin, you are the boss of the wars and one of the masters of weird. How do you do it? What do you do? Right. The final three of the four settings for the Yellow King role-playing game are all uh, either have a reality shift in them or have, and as in the case of the last one, this is normal now, the strong potential for a reality shift where it stops being a wainscot horror world and becomes an out-and-out alternate world. And so this is one of the main issues is that the characters are supposed to sort of realize subconsciously in a way that they have disincentives to bring to the front of their minds the fact that they're living in a wrong reality, that things have uh, the whole world has gone uh, completely askew on them and things that other people don't even blink at, as in the wars, which have all of these weird war machines that uh, uh, Jamie's question uh, describes. People think of that as normal. That's part of the, the Continental War of 1947 that they're involved in. But they're still also terrifying. And so I think what we're looking at here in this example, and we'll get to other examples later, is there are two axes uh, going on here. Uh, one is familiar versus unfamiliar, and the other is 
threatening versus non-threatening. And the thing is, is that all of these things are threatening. You yeah. should absolutely run away from or hide from the ornithopters and the clanking Jules Verne tanks with the spider legs. They're all terrifying. And the whole point of the wars is to get at, through a layer of nerd tropery, the fact that war itself is the most horrifying experience that people can have. And it sort of, you know, creates this layer of coolness on top of it to make it accessible. But in the wars, everything is terrifying. Everything can kill you. And the question is rather, is this something that everyone has heard of and accepts as normal? Or is this something that you, the members of the squad, are encountering for the first time? And so it's not so much weird versus not weird as, again, familiar versus unfamiliar. And familiar to the characters versus familiar to the players, which I think is where Jamie is running into his occasional snag, because if you were running the same exact scenario in a regular World War II, which could be presented, or a regular Vietnam, to speak to my Wednesday game, which you can present as absolutely as chaotic and dangerous and messed up as it actually is at the game table by emphasizing the sort of chaotic horror of it and de-emphasizing the war movie part of it. But you would still want to be able to have a signpost for that, you know, mysterious black diamond in the sky is not a regular weapon that you expect to see. That is a messed up weapon. That is an unusual weapon. And, and in a regular World War II, you could signal that's an unusual weapon by saying something that the players at the table know is not belonging in World War II, but it's harder to do it in an entirely fictional universe, be that uh, the wars or even a science fiction game where you could be doing a war setting on some planet and they don't know that the diamond-shaped craft or the anti-vehicle hedgehog is a weird, for the setting, weird thing as opposed to a regular weird thing. And I think that to some extent, you need to you know, he says without breaking the atmosphere too often by telling the players, but you do sort of have to tell the players in some, you know, ideally subtle fashion, such as you say to the most experienced sergeant, you know, you've never seen a weapon like that. Or you say to the weird occult one or the sensitive one, you've dreamed about this weapon and now it's physically here on the battlefield or some other way to signal this is not usual as opposed to this is dangerous, right? Right. And uh, you can phrase it all sorts of different ways. And you've just provided examples of that. A more subtle way of saying, you know, this is a regular weapon in this world is, oh, yeah, that's a that's an MD-38, but it's got some sort of weird custom work on it that you're not familiar with. That must have been uh, probably the, the, the techie from that squad probably fixed up this thing. And if you uh, looked at it for a bit, you could figure out what it is versus, holy mackerel for the there's this thing coming at you and it's seems to be sort of mechanical and there's there's oil spewing from it but it also seems to have tentacles and so you can signal in the way that you describe things which it is however i wouldn't discount the value of clarity mm. i think in general gms are very concerned about breaking the mood by being clear and i would argue that clarity helps establish the mood because it orients people. So you don't have to tie yourself in knots going through that shorthand of suggesting the familiar versus the unfamiliar so much as you can come out and say that because after all, you know, if they're trudging up the hill to a fort, you're going to say you trudge up the hill and there's some dried herbs in the air and uh, there's a mountainous uh, structure in the back, right? That's all telling. You're just mm -hmm. all describing as telling. And so saying unfamiliar or familiar, I think, is actually perfectly fine. And the fact that players are disoriented and don't know which is which, you can also come right out and tell them that's the point. That's yeah. the effect that the game is going for. The fact that you're never sure whether this is reality as a weird dream versus this thing is unfamiliar even within the weird dream reality, that confusion is all part of the point and something that you should emphasize. And even, you know, to the point of if the players start to get too hung up about it and ask questions, in the wars, there's a thing where if you start to question reality too much and realize you're in a wrong timeline, you have to make a composure test. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you fail it, you start to get weird migraines and stuff because that's 
the, the disorientation is is a feature. Yeah, I want to go back and give a manly uh, shoulder punch to the notion of the things that are weird familiar that you sort of techno thriller the description of a little bit. You know, when you say it's another the wave of dragonfly ornithopters appears out of the cloud bank. Oh, less. It's the enemy's dangerous F-17s. And uh, you, you know that uh, they uh, are deadly in ground strafing attacks and that sort of thing. And that feeds both player I- illusion of competence and power. And then also lets them know that, yes, this is a weird thing, but it's a weird normal thing that you accept as part of the universe. I love that notion of the techno thriller narration, just like you would do if it was a, a wave of stukas or something. And then, you know, you can give the same sort of Clancy-esque or war novel narration about it that, you know, your characters would get if it was them at Cambrai facing a tank for the first time, right? Right. And you can also have gradations of familiarity as well, because you won't just have familiar versus unfamiliar. You will have things that you have heard other people talk about and haven't encountered yet. You were in the mess hall with some other soldiers, and they said that they'd encountered this strange rotating column that had a peculiar wriggling sign on it, and it uh, emitted this sort of ray that uh, made them question their lineage and uh, think that they were possibly inhuman. And where do you slot that in, right? It's a, it's a rumor you've heard and now you're seeing it. Right. And so that's, first of all, additionally creepy, right? And mm-hmm. you could, whether you want to foreshadow that by having the scene in the mess hall and then having the thing appear or just when you're describing it, say, well, you've heard rumors of this. So some people know about it, but it's, not standard knowledge and you're not happy to be encountering it now that also i think helps build in the uncertainty so that you're uncertain even as to the various degrees of uncertainty that exist i think another way that you can do it is another way that war fiction does it generally is your viewpoint character is often new to the war right that they've that they've joined up or they've been drafted or whatever and they've this, they've gone through their basic training, and now this is their first deployment, their first battle. And it's the way that the author explains, you know, what's going on to the reader, especially if it's a science fiction type battle. And it's also the way that you sort of get to know that character as they're introduced. So if you have the opportunity running a regular combat in that universe before you get to the weird, unfamiliar stuff, is a way to get them from, oh, you're right, the flying saucers, they're on our side, they're good, we like them, we don't like the um, uh, cockroach tank, that's a bad guy tank, but we're used to it. We've gone through one regular combat where nothing untoward is being deployed. Right, except you've discovered you should also be terrified of machine guns. Right, yes, right. And yes. artillery fire. The, and, and the blue the laser, are- which, you know, uh, decapitates you. You don't want the, that's a bad laser. So, yeah, you've established you know, sort of the ground conditions of combat. And ideally you've run a fairly interesting combat, but that's a, I guess, different question is how do you change up military encounters? But the notion is to give them the players a sense of if nothing else changed, our characters would be doing a military campaign in this universe. And then you add in the, the Cthulhu's or the Carcosa's or the whatever is also messed up about the combat, the unnatural. Right. And to step back from this particular setting, yeah. let's say, for example, that it's a post supernatural inbreak world where the, the vampires and the werewolves are now public knowledge. Everybody, mm-hmm. you know, it's like true blood. Everybody knows about them and there are rules and you can be familiar with the rules. You can be, you know, have a resident vampirologist in your group and you can describe in a sort of a blasé tone the weird things that are present in this world that aren't present in our world, right? It's like, oh, yeah, there's a 7-Eleven, and then there's a a ghoul incinerator, and then on the other side, there's like a a Chuck E. Cheese that's being renovated. And just sort of throw those details in a blasé world so that that's just part of normal existence. And then when the characters encounter something that shouldn't exist, given the reality that they're familiar with, right? Let's say that you know, you've never encountered a ghoul like this that can bilocate. This is, you know, once you've finished fighting it, you're going to have to go talk to the paranormal authority and and report this according to the newly passed public information uh, laws of 2021. And so it can also be part of just how matter of fact you are about the way that you described something in an uh, alternate horror setting. Yeah, the tone carries a lot to move it out of the the war sort of narration you know signposting the 
unusual for this unusual setting is going to really come down to tone. It's going to come down to how you describe it and how other characters in the setting react to it. So if your 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 vampirologist, to continue your example, is is with you and he's an NPC, or rather your party's there and you you've got a priest who's an NPC, and you're going along and you see a shadowy figure emerge from the fog, and you're all like, okay, it's another vampire, you know, everyone get ready, and the priest blanches and runs away, that is a signal. That that's another way of saying without saying, oh, you know, sort of the you know, in this one, the NPCs are like the animals in the forest that all scatter because they know this is bad. So other NPCs can be, what's that? And that's one of the horrid mist golems that we've only heard about. And that that can feed you that information as well. And maybe they don't say it, you know, quite as, as you know, Bob, that way. But they they respond in a way that lets you know that that is the normal response to this kind of thing is, unfamiliarity and shock as opposed to all right vampires again everyone get out your charcoal bullets yeah and if you're concerned again about hiding the fact that you're doing this one way to hide it is by making the characters be smart and so well as an expert vampirologist you know that this creeping blood pattern uh, that's moving around on the wall uh, this is not a normal thing that happens and and so you're disguising the this is not normal under the and you are an expert uh, thing, which we've uh, talked about in the past. And once we are beginning to round back into things we've talked about before, it's time to talk about a thing we're about to talk about, which we're about to talk about on the other side of this here commercial. Palgrain Press invites you to a reality-shattered masked ball. With three new support products for the Yellow King role-playing game. Black Star Magic, a guide to supernatural powers in the four realms haunted by the King in Yellow. Where every spell is potent. A potent shock card, that is. Includes magic rules and their accompanying shock cards by Robin. And a magic-rich scenario for each of the four sequences. Dancer at the Bone Cabaret, Sarah Saltiel's Tale of Belle Epoque Terror. A Casket at Latil. Village-based military horror from Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Memories of a Dream Clown, Ruth Kitchen Tillman's visitation with everyone's favorite Aftermath children's entertainer. And Sarah's Love Wears No Mask, which brings Carcosa to its natural contemporary home, reality television. Also out now, Legions of Carcosa, the bestiary for the Yellow King. From alien parasites to warped human conspirators. From hungry buildings to incarnations of drought. From gods torn from the pages of myth to war machines that hunt in wolf-like packs. Legions of Carcosa presents 86 new foes to mystify, haunt, and menace your investigators. Fresh from the skull-mashed minds of John R. Harness, Kira Magrin, Sam Saltiel and Monica Valatinelli with Daniel Kwan. Finally, you can now also grab Robin's latest novel, Fifth Imperative. Follow the technician, previously seen in The Missing and the Lost, as he continues his reluctant political rise and discovers a bullet that refuses to follow the rules. Kicking off a fast-paced supernatural alternate reality political thriller. Yep, it's one of those again. All three available now. That's Black Star Magic, Legions of Carcosa, and Fifth Imperative. Available at Royally Superior your local game stores or at the Pelgrane Press web shop. The retinal scan that you had to undergo and the unfortunately somewhat invasive background check, and we're sorry about that, means that you've once more stepped into the Tradecraft Hut, where we're going to talk about, in this case, some contemporary espionage, because uh, beloved backer Ginge says... Please give an overview of Bellingcat, its history, and some of the theories about them, particularly interested in how you said bored MI6 guys when mentioning them in the Wagner Group segment in 504. Was that already 80 episodes ago? Oh guess, it's great fun to have time do that. Good old time. So there's there's more question, but I think that's a, a good place to start, and I'll pop in with more of the more question uh, when appropriate. Right. Bellingcat is... A open source, it's uh, called itself the Intelligence Agency for the People. It was started by a guy named Elliot Higgins, who began blogging as Brown Moses after the uh, Frank Zappa song. And he was one of the sort of crop of home OSINT guys, open source intelligence, that began to emerge once Google Earth 
and cheap directional software became a thing. And he did geolocating and he became an ammo nerd and he uh, got interested in the Syrian war in 2012 and started a blog sort of taking, you know, news pictures and social media posts about the war and saying, well, this bomb that landed in this area is a bomb used by the Syrian government. It's not an American bomb. It's a Russian bomb. Therefore, the Syrians bomb this place or he'll locate some questioned explosion and say it's definitely in this part of the city, not in that part of the city. And it's the sort of thing that lots and lots of people are doing. There was a guy named Oryx who made a, a lengthy career out of identifying every destroyed piece of equipment in the Ukraine war until he burned himself out a few months ago. But it's it's a very common thing that happens. And so this guy, Brown Moses, started doing it and got really excited at the potential of all these technological tools. And founded this group, Bellingcat, in 2014 to do more of that. Which was funded by a Kickstarter. Yes, <laughs> so exactly. So this is very, very contemporary and somewhat weirdly close to home. Right. So the first thing that happens when he founds Bellingcat is the Russians shoot down Malayan Airlines Flight 17 over Ukraine, and it becomes a gigantic scandal. And he demonstrates fairly conclusively, and the Dutch government investigation demonstrated the same thing four years later, that the Russians shot it down. And he does all of the, here's the angle of the missile, here's the arcs as we saw in social media, basically demonstrate absolutely conclusively that the Russians shot down that airliner and that sort of gets him on the map and he gets lots of people who start contributing. There's volunteers who work for the site as well as a small full-time staff centered on Higgins. He's originally based in Leicester in England. After Brexit in 2018, he moves to Amsterdam, and now Bellingcat also has offices in Berlin and The Hague. Conveniently located in The Hague. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just in case you need to, you know, CC something. Yeah. So that's the the structure, right? The Bellingcat website also uh, ID'd the Skripal poisoners in 2018. We talked about the Skripal poisoning case, and it used data from Russian passport files to demonstrate who those guys are. And you may say, as I said at the time, that's odd that they had data from Russian passport files. I'll bet those aren't publicly accessible. And indeed they are not. So that is where the OS part of OSINT sort of drops off the radar a bit for them. And then they did the same sort of investigation on the Navalny poisoning in 2020. They've, you know, popped the identity of a probable GRU agent of influence. They've basically done the Lord's work messing around in Europe and other places. Right. And sometimes, presumably, as, as you are hinting, the work of other Western intelligence agencies, because you can imagine them wanting to, uh, you know, if you want to get things out and get them out there without your super obvious fingerprints on them, now you have uh, another outlet. And that's not a new thing of intelligence agencies <laughs> no. using news bureaus to get their story out. Not new at all. And in fact, the CIA, because the CIA is terrible at its job, bragged about, well, now that Bellingcat exists, we don't have to show sources and methods. <laughs> Bellingcat can just, quote, find them out. And it's like, oh, can they really? Well done, the CIA. So Bellingcat says on its website, it does not solicit or accept funding directly from any national government. And I think the word directly is doing a lot of work there, but can solicit or accept contributions from international or intergovernmental institutions or funding that is distributed by a private foundation that accepts government funds. And if you, you know, if you don't think that MI6, the CIA, whoever can find the odd dump truck of money to dump through a very convenient laundry at Bellingcat, then my sweet summer child, I don't want to hurt your feelings. Right. It'd be a pretty cushy job to be the person in charge of turning your budget into small five to $10,000 donations. Right. Or in some cases, 100000 to $500,000 donations. Standout donors to Bellingcat include the Zinc Group, which is a MI6 front, the National Endowment for Democracy, which is a CIA front, a public-private partnership, I guess, is technically the way what we call it here, and the Digital News Initiative, which is a Google front. And again, the degree to which Google has been working hand-in-pocket with Western intelligence agencies and domestic surveillance groups is perhaps over-demonstrated at this point. So there we are. They've had uh, staffers who write for them, who worked formerly for the GCHQ, which is the British 
NSA, and for the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency in America. And if you believe that anyone who has ever worked for those two agencies is allowed to write, you know, a recipe blog without clearing it with their bosses, then again, I cherish your naivete and, and never change. Right. And they say they don't accept money from government, so they don't say anything about accepting thumb drives. Right, exactly. Or what's basically the sort of, well, we can't do anything about it, but if this passport file accidentally fell into the hands of Bellingcat, who can say what they would do? Oops, I dropped this passport file. Right. Gosh darn. Yeah. I mean, again, the fact that you are doing the behest or working with MI6 and the CIA does not make you bad people. And Elliot Higgins may be exactly what his public-facing identity is, but on the internet, no one knows if you're a dog or a spook, so I don't even think that Elliot Higgins necessarily knows who all the people who work for Bellingcat are or have been, and one of their specialties is piercing electronic legends, but I don't know that they turn that same weather eye on everyone attached to Bellingcat as opposed to people who are GRU poisoners, right? Right. And, but that's the very nature of the espionage world is right. that there's yeah. a bewildering number of players and you don't always know whose side people are on. And sometimes the answer is both. Right. So we yeah. get to the second part of Ginger's question. Could you maybe talk about the type of investigative journalism that Bellingcat, New York Times, Visual Investigations, and other news teams undertake and how to make it gameable? I think it'd be something cool to introduce either as an ally or a form of blowback but I'm not sure how to make it fun and something players can interact with. So depending on what you're doing, first of the most obvious thing is that one of the player characters can come from the background of being uh, an amateur OSINT person who's turned into a more professional OSINT person. In the Esoteris, it perfectly fits the setting and would be a cool sort of point of departure from having everybody else be part of a different agency is, well, I'm, I just started doing this on the internet when satellite imagery became in- available and I discovered these weird sites and I started getting information about this sort of occult side to things. And now here I am in the lobby of a Holiday Inn in Delaware uh, and I'm being sent with all these, you know, hardcore people into the forest to see what the screaming in the woods is all about. So I think as a character background, that's uh, super exciting. And I don't think it would take too much bending to have one of the players in Knights Black Agents be uh, someone who's typed a bit and found themselves now way uh, over their heads. Uh, yeah. I mean, someone could, you know, show up in Knights Black Agents being an OSINT expert, be they officially GCHQ or unofficially GCHQ, a la Bellingcat or whoever. I think that's a completely legitimate thing. And as with every player group, the trick is not. I've found this wonderful, cool technique. How can I make the players do it? It's if you've got a player who's interested in that wonderful, cool technique, how can I do stories in which that cool technique coincidentally happens to be a great way to investigate vampires? And so in a game where you've got a a Bellingcat type or a, a visual investigator or an Oryx type guy, an OSINT computer guy as one of your player characters, suddenly it becomes very important to be able to know what kind of missile that was or what kind of helicopter that was or where it took off from and, you know, look at publicly available flight databases and say, Oh, that, that plane with the blanked out windows, we found its tail number and now we can track it around the world and use those powers and say, rather than just, are you demonstrating that uh, that's a Russian tank that got blown up? You're demonstrating, you know, that was a Russian tank that is sitting outside that tomb in Romania for some reason. What's that about? And it gives you, you know, it's just the, the vehicle or the delivery direction from which information comes. Because coincidentally, if you're a nice black agents, you're not just Johnny OSINT. You are like Oryx. You are super OSINT. And so you're able to do all manner of things, perhaps even slightly unrealistic things with that sort of uh, database and technology. You can even and enhance JPEGs in Knights Black Agents. Even enhance JPEGs. Yeah. And if you're one of your buddies in uh, the Knights Black Agents group is former GCHQ or former NSA or whatever, uh, then maybe he does get the occasional thumb drive from his buddies at work. And then you have to say, well, is GACHQ penetrated by vampires or is there someone else in the British government that knows about vampires and is trying to help us out. And that becomes a, a fun question of its own. That sort of 
you know, Wilderness of Mirrors spy sort of game, if that's what you want to play. Uh, right. So it's, it's not about, you know, how can I make my group of wandering gun thugs and hobos care about OSINT? You do that by having an NPC who's an OSINT guy, as Jin suggests. But if you've got a player who's into it and wants to play a guy who's done it, I mean, just follow a few of these OSINT accounts on Twitter and you'll find the sorts of wild things that they can do. I mean, this used to just be called journalism, but now that no one does journalism anymore, we have a special new cool name for it is all. And to bring to the fore the thing that we've been treating in the background, the next most obvious thing to do is make it, you know, the OSINT guy is, you know, your Stephen Ray in the in the Bourne movies. The journalist source is now an OSINT guy source, mm-hmm. and you uh, go and meet them in the station, and then, you know, the <laughs> sniper shoots at him or whatever, or you just get the information you need. Putting that character in danger is a good reason to move from the protocol that it should be the players who have the information to here's a person with a source who has the information, but also here's a, now there's an action scene and something else to investigate. Right. You have a, a threat to defeat, to get the information or a uh, source to avenge after you've pulled the thumb drive from his still cooling corpse. Again, just like Bourne does to poor Stephen Ray, a guardian guy. So take that, the guardian. And of course, the OSINT people can be a danger to you as well. They can be a threat. They can be tracking you and what Mm -hmm. you're up to. And, you know, suddenly your your flight is up on Blue Sky or there's somebody coming around banging on your hotel room door to ask you about, you know, the strange coincidence of the license plate of the car you're uh, using or something. So that can be a secondary nuisance that you have to avoid without uh, blowing your cover, or that can be something sent against you uh, by the bad guys. And there's also the question, of course, of disinformation, because along with the growth of OSINT, there have been a blossoming of fake OSINT guys who Mm. have been hired by the, the Russians and others in order to spread disinformation and or who are just, just people, uh, wannabes is when anything is just cool wannabes and clout chasers and so you may see information relevant to your case drop on social media and the question is can i trust this where is it coming from is it from a reliable source is it from a reliable source who's being impersonated is it from the enemy or is it just uh, you know some goof who's mucking things up for us but all of those questions lead the investigators in search of something that, that they have to leave the hotel room to go and figure out what's going on, or at least, you know, get on the computer in the hotel room to figure out what's going on. But then they have to leave. They have to right. leave the hotel room. I mean, the thing is, if you get on the computer and there's some guy who's using your digital footprint to track you, that's an innately bad idea as well. So I, I think that OSINT as bad guy or as threat works really well against the esoterists because veil out is such an important part of their lives or a Delta green game uh, where you similarly have to veil stuff out. And you can absolutely imagine someone like those guys that track CIA black flights using the tail numbers on their planes. Suddenly they're mad at Delta green or they're mad at the Ordo Veritatis and they start tracking their veil outs and, and blowing them up. And if you didn't, you know, cross every T or maybe it's not even you, you turned it over to the veil out department. You're the hitting department. And Veilout is, is run as shoddily as the actual intelligence system. And sure enough, the Veilout falls apart when four guys with sleep deprivation and good uh, satellite hookups blow your whole Veilout to pieces. And so you have to figure out, how do I stop these guys without just racking up corpses, if you're the good guys? How do I make this threat go away? And that can be, you know, to destroy their credibility by exposing them as as wannabes or Russian agents or whatever, or it can be, you know, through bribing them, you know, arranging for them to win the Dutch lottery, for example, and suddenly have enough money to open an office in The Hague, just to throw an example somewhere. Who can say, right? Right. And so that could be a really fun sequel scenario is that you've already done the thing where you you veiled it out a couple of episodes ago, and now the either naive or actively sinister uh, OSINT people are ruining your veil out and causing uh, the thing to remanifest, whether that thing is uh, Yithians or demons of the, uh, of the outer dark. Well, I think we've perfectly well helped uh, Bellingcat cover its tracks by confusing everything uh, even further. And now a uh, completely clear commercial before we head into another segment.
The best of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English, that's Swedish, not English, you can delight in every original issue of Phoenix and the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Protect this podcast from weird war machines by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Ariel Celeste, Jeffrey Pittman, Linda and Mike Schiffer, Peter Nick. And Patrick Joint. It's time once more for Ken and Robin Recycle Audio. Over the next few episodes, we're going to serialize the dramatic interaction panel that I did at Gen Con with Emily Cambius and John R. Harness. We're going to start off with the opening bit. I think this is a pretty good encapsulation of dramatic role-playing to get started with. You'll hear a scene between uh, Emily and John, and we'll start to uh, lay the groundwork for what we're talking about when we're discussing how uh, role-playing characters interact. There is one factual change uh, since Gen Con, which is that Hillfolk is back in print. You still can't go to the booth at Gen Con to buy Hillfolk, but you can buy it from your uh, reliable game store. or Maybe you can next Gen Con. Right, yes. And also from uh, the Pellegrin store. But uh, without further ado, uh, let's uh, start talking about dramatic interaction. So, hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to the dramatic interaction panel. If you're feeling undramatic, you've come to the wrong panel. And let's uh, start by introducing our exciting panelists. Creator of the Sad Mech Jam Game Design Challenge. Founder of Knucklebone Magazine. Corner of the term Lyric Games, of which we may hear more anon. Now working on an anti-dramatic game about furniture, it's John R. Harness! Hello! Designer of Nor Gloom of Night, Tough Broads, contributor to Hunter the Reckoning and Blood Sigils, and freelance editor slash writer for adults and kids alike, it's Emily Cambius! I am writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. Works I'll be referencing include Hill Folk, a game of dramatic interaction, and Hamlet's Hit Points, breaking down the basic beats of narrative for role players. And I co-host the weekly podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. <laughs> so I'm going to start by getting a sort of a, a feel of the room. And so I, my first question is how many of you will be nodding sagely when I refer to my game Hill Folk slash Drama System? There we go. And how many of you will be encountering its terms for the first time, therefore wanting to go buy it, and then going to the Pelgrim booth and finding it's out of print, and then later buying it in PDF? Okay, there we go. <laughs> wow. um, so what we're here to talk about today is, as, as it says on the label, dramatic interaction in your games. Those are the moments as distinct from procedural interaction, the stuff that we're used to, where people solve external physical problems. So that can be anything from figuring out what room you're in to running away from a shagath to staking a vampire, all of those things. And dramatic interaction is about just characters interacting with each other and having that be actually interesting and more importantly for the purpose of this panel, actually going somewhere. A challenge in the way that people often interact in role-playing games is, uh, especially in trad games where that's not uh, often, you know, the main part of the menu, is that a character will, you know, want something from another character and the other character will, the other player will go, well, that's out of character for me to give in in any way ever and just, oh, no, I'm not going to do that and then they go back and forth for a while and then the GM goes, okay, moving on. But there's another way to do it because, of course, uh, there's a whole strain, uh, perhaps even the dominant strain of narrative, is not about the way that people solve problems, but the play that they relate to each other. And I'm going to start by describing one way that those scenes work. It's not the only way, 
uh, John and Emily, I'm sure, will be mentioning others. But this is a way that reliably works, and it's a way that was first described by a writer named Michael Shirtliff in his book Audition, which is actually a book about for actors about how to score really well in the first moments of an audition where they're playing a scene together, and it teaches them to read the text of dramatic pieces in order to find the most interesting way to play it. Coincidentally, that's actually a great advice for actors actually after they get the role, and it turns out to be great advice for creators of dramatic scenes and role players who want to act them out. And so basically there are two figures in a dramatic scene that has a chance of going somewhere. There's the petitioner, the character who wants something emotionally, some sort of emotional concession from the other. And then there's the grantor, the one who may grant that petition, may come toward them emotionally, may give them what they want, or may refuse the petition, may decline to go there. And once it is established in the middle of a scene that a petition has either been uh, granted or not, that has played out that scene, and then you move on to another one. And to demonstrate... And, oh, I didn't warn you about this. Uh, John already knows. I'm going to have my co-panelists play a scene. Oh. Okay, so uh, someone mentioned a piece of uh, literature or TV show that you are into that is primarily about character interaction. Crouching Tiger, Tiger, Hidden Dragon has a lot of punchy-punchy in it, but it does have dramatic scenes. So we are going to the world of Wuxia, where characters... Uh contain powerful emotions within mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. and sometimes express it with swords but sometimes with words and so uh, Emily what is your character in a, a world like the Wuxia world of Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon you probably have a, a name like uh, you know White uh, Flower or something like that I think that uh, I am a, a young woman who, uh, whose father has been killed he was a soldier and she is now working in classic Crush and Dagger Hidden Dragon fashion in a tea house, and I am plotting my revenge on my father's killer. So there's someone that you have an emotional relationship with who cares about you and who, in turn, you care about, mm-hmm. but you're often in conflict with that person for some reason. And who is that? Your father's killer. <laughs> <laughs> Whose name is the jade cockroach (laughs) and a rumor is that I have recently descended from the ninth heaven having achieved bodhisattvahood so if if that's obviously the reason why you can't kill the jade cockroach immediately because if he's achieved bodhisattvahood that's you're out of luck so there's something that you want emotionally then from the jade cockroach who you run into in the tea house what is that thing emotionally um I want him to Say that he's sorry. Okay, so you bump into the jade cockroach and uh, play the scene. How dare you come here? Come here? This is my tea house. You've never set foot in here until this day. Well, that may be true, but I have my reasons. <laughs> and what kind of reasons are those? Reasons of, of, of murdering and, and, and killing and, and, and taking, away, taking away people's loved ones? You speak of a former self of my own. It's still you! Are we all not nothingness, truly? My father's nothing now. <laughs> I see that you are on the path of the Dharma. Come, meet me, with, meet me to have tea. The day I have tea with you is the day that you finally admit how much you hurt me. I give a um, sign to my fellow who locks the door clandestinely. She grips the knife at her hip. Okay, well, I I think this petition has been denied. Uh, So in my game, Hill Folk Drama System, what you would then do is determine whether the petition is denied. In this case, it was. And Emily would get a drama token from John. And the drama tokens uh, would later allow uh, the characters, as they gather them, to gain more control over the situation as people go on to call scenes. Uh, Specifically... One of the main things that you do is if you have two drama tokens, you can actually require someone to give in. And mm-hmm. so if Emily had two tokens in this instance, she could have slid them across the table of John, and John went, oh, unlock that door. You're right. I've been riven by guilt forever for what I've done and come toward her. And then, of course, that would 
mess up your character even more <laughs> if they did that, uh -huh. which would change the dramatic situation and, and you would continue. So the point there is that dramatic scenes have moments of resolution, that they go for a certain time, and uh, usually naturally, uh, once you start thinking about, oh, I have to give in about half the time, you start to do that as a player. And so that's my number one tip as a player when you're in a situation where the, you're not playing a story game or health folk or whatever, but in a regular trad game. If you want to make a scene interesting, start asking yourself, even if the other player engaged isn't thinking about it with this framework at all, is, okay, so normally I care about this person. I spend a lot of time with them. Uh, I don't always agree with them. But as we think about in our real lives, we often have to come toward people we can't be intransigent all the time. Maybe it's our fantasy to be intransigent all the time. Maybe that's appealing in role-playing. I think it is for a lot of people. But in terms of making a scene interesting, that's the structure that you're going for. And this is true not only in home games, but I don't know if any of you participate in streaming and stream for at the entertainment of others. But if you do, that's something that people need all the more, is a sense of a give and take within drama. So, Emily, maybe you could share your own thoughts on basically what are, the, what are the components that make a dramatic or emotional scene interesting and uh, resolve in some way. So I, I like your um, definitions of petitioner and grantor, but I, I argue a little bit that there's something more that needs to be there, which is specifically history. So this could be personal history, this could be factional history, but there has to be a tie between the people previous to them actually interacting. Uh, you know, this is why often you and your Uber driver aren't having like the most deep philosophical conversation of all time, although I don't know everyone's Uber driver. <laughs> it's because to have those conversations, to have those deep dramatic interactions, you need to have this shared sense of history, or at least the knowledge of someone else's past and history. And also a sense of consequence, yes, right? Absolutely. If you... Uh, at the end of the ride with your Uber driver, you might get out and go, well, that guy was kind of racist and move on, but there's nothing, uh, there's nothing beyond that. Yeah. Whereas if it's your mom, you have to deal with them again after that conversation. So it's something that moves forward into the story. You are not going to have, uh, you know, in a gaming context, a deep emotional relationship with the witness that you're trying to get one piece of information out of or you know, the, the guy that you buy magic swords from, uh -huh. you could, theoretically, he could be your dad. You could establish that. Uh -huh. Try that in your next D&D &D game. And say, uh -huh. he's my dad, and we have a weird relationship, and he always charges me 10% more for swords, and <laughs> see what your DM does it. And, so, and when, when you have that interaction, that adds to your personal history with each other, too. So the, the train of history between you is constantly being added to. So each interaction yeah. deepens that. And that's story, and that's right story. there. That's, that's story 101. Uh, John, what are your uh, basic thoughts on making drama interesting in role-playing? Well, I think that I had a fully thought thought that has left my head immediately. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, it's, it's day six of Gen Con, so we <laughs> yeah. all understand. You're so right. You're so right. Um, I remember. What I'm going to say is less sort of about story and is maybe more about kind of player-to-player -player interactions, maybe a kind of meta concern, which is that I really love in role-playing games to make what I would call and consider very strong decisions, right? The, well, yeah, yeah, I've, I've made a thing happen that is consequential, right? But I think that it's possible to make too many of those or to make them in a way that doesn't feel like everybody else is involved. And I think that often, in lots of different gaming contexts, we negotiate that in a sort of interpersonal way based on people's body language, based on people's facial expressions. You know, you kind of you feel out the group, and often it's your friends, sometimes not, often your friends. And so you get a, you get a sense of what's the right kind of calibration of, of when I get to take the spotlight and when I get to make a really big decision, kind of on everybody's behalf, right? I killed that guy! It's done now! Whoops! You know? So I say all that to say that one thing that I really like about Drama System is that it incorporates that kind of nebulous hovering above the game sort of thing, and it gamifies it into the game in such a way that I can say, no, 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 like, it's not just that I want to make a strong play, it's like I have, in a gamey way, saved up energy that I am now expending. And so we are, it's like I get to claim the prize when I want it, you know, but I have to work for it. So that's, I think that often in these moments of compromise between characters, you know, it's not only a compromise between the 
characters, it's a compromise between the players and their desired experiences, right? Do they want to win or not? And I think that when you have a gamey way to really say, no, 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 like, I, this is mine now, and I'm taking narrative control. Are we, how many of you have heard the phrase narrative control before? Okay, I'm seeing a lot of hands. Great. So for the sake of the recording, um, a narrative control is just the sort of concept of who gets to decide what at any given time. In, in the most trad games, it's you get to make decisions about your character, and the GM, judge, whoever, gets to make decisions about everything else. And then the, the game sort of negotiates between these. In a way, it's simil- that going on again, but about this particular kind of interpersonal thing of, yeah. yeah. And... You mentioned the issue of, do you feel that you want to win all the time? Mm -hmm. Which is the number one thing that you as a GM will run into with players when they do this, is the player who needs to come up on top of every interaction. One of my favorite Hillfolk players, uh, I'm going to breakfast with on Sunday morning here at the show, his frustration at the way that Hillfolk means you can't, you only get to win half the time, (laughs) was so entertaining for the rest of the group because he was I want to get everything from I want to get exactly what I want from this interaction and everybody else made that work as part of that dynamic but you may find that dysfunctional if that's your scene partner or your it's the GM and part of that is always continuing to remind them of you don't get to have victory all the time and you also even when you can someone concedes to you they only come your way a little, right? They don't utterly reform themselves and become forever after the person you've always wanted them to be because I don't know if you have experienced life. That's not how (laughs) life works. What? Yeah. And so you, if you're a GM, you may need to watch that a little and sort of help guide them toward the idea that a partial concession Mm -hmm. is in fact the most you can usually expect from anyone Mm -hmm. at any time. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the sourcebook for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlathos. Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. We're now going to enter that most ill-defined of huts. The one that exists on the weird borderland between crackpotism, the paranormal, alternate history... And uh, we can tell that we're in the Elliptonia hut because we can see the gray alien and the Nordic alien drinking kombucha over in the corner. They're not totally interested in this particular segment we're going to get into. But on the other hand, the alien big cat screaming on the moor, this is right up his alley because, Ken, we're going to talk about Jean Grenier. And this is not the 20th century philosopher. Initially, I had written Jean Grenier in, in my script document, and then I looked it up and it's like, but there's nothing paranormal about this person. And that's because we're not talking about him. We're talking about the French werewolf, Jean Grenier. So we're going to go now to the very beginning of the 17th century in a little village near La Rochelet uh, in Guyenne in southwest France. And we have a, a fellow who perhaps gets into a spot of trouble, maybe just by bragging to some girls and and doubling down. But it seems like there's something more feral afoot. Well, indeed there is. The young lad, Jean Grenier, was born around 1590. He ran away from home in the spring of 1603 
And in May of 1603, a young shepherdess named Marguerite Poirier reported being attacked by a weird, stumpy, red-headed wolf. This is during a series of wolf attacks that had terrorized the little village. And uh, like a baby had been carried away and children had been attacked by wolves. And again, there was a wave of wolf attacks in France throughout the 15th and 16th centuries that you had basically the dislocated condition following the civil wars and the hundred years war set up a place where lots of wolves ate lots of human corpses, got a, a taste for people and began attacking. And this is completely well, normal is maybe not the word, but it was a regular occurrence that wolves would attack. Right. You often hear that well, wolves don't attack humans, but right. tell early modern France about that. Yeah, exactly. Or tell anyone who's ever lived near a whole bunch of wolves with no guns that. So anyway, the uh, good Marguerite Poirier uh, chased uh, the wolf off with a stick. And then she's talking to her friends a girl named Jeanette and another girl whose name has not survived and they're keeping cows. And here shows up Jean Grenier, who is also weird and thin and redheaded. And he says, Hey girls, which of you is the cutest? Cause I'm going to marry you. And they react as teenage girls have in all history to 13 year old boys and ignored him. And he said, no, seriously, I'm a werewolf. I'll be cool. And that sort of gets everyone's attention. Yes, and it turns out this, he still doesn't have game. This is not right. a good. Even as a werewolf, trying. he has no game. He is not Taylor Lautner here. Think about not that. So at some point, they're sort of saying, you're not either a werewolf. And he says, yes, I am. I have a wolf skin. It turns me into a wolf. And he starts describing his werewolf depredations, including I ate this baby. I attacked this little kid by the bridge. I ate this girl. And it's all of the descriptions of things that he's saying are matching these wolf attacks that have been happening in this little village. Right. So if this is a false accusation, it's a false self-accusation. Right. It's a false confession. And one of the reasons we know about Jean Grenier, by the way, is that his trial documents and an analysis of the trial done by a, a French intellectual of the time have survived. Most of the trial documents of Bordeaux, which was the big city in the area, all burned up in the revolution. So we don't have that many of these trial documents. And this is why we know so much about this case. And as you read it, you, you feel really kind of bad for Jean Grenier because he's obviously got bad home life issues. His dad has driven him out of the house when he's 13. He is visibly emaciated when he's talking to these girls. So he's been begging and living on the edge of a town that itself is by no means wealthy. And he's clearly got something going on wrong with him. And anyway, though, this is not these girls job to judge that it's the prosecutor's job. So they go to the prosecutor and they say, this kid, Jean Grenier, just confessed to being a werewolf and killing all these babies Maybe you should do something about it. So he's arrested and he's taken to court and he testifies, tells the court the same thing he told the girls about all of his uh, lycanthropy, that the Lord of the Forest, a.k.a. Pierre Labourant, who lives in an iron house in the woods where there are uh, people grilling all the time and he uh, chews on an iron chain for some reason, gave him a wolf skin, gave him some ointment, and he uses that to turn into a wolf. He confessed to all of the killings. And he also fingered his dad and a neighbor named Pierre Dutiller as fellow werewolves. And right, so, the, so there's some false accusations. Right. There's the false accusation part. The court arrests both his dad and his neighbor. And when he's confronted by them, he recants that part of his accusation. And then he confesses again because he's like, I'm afraid of them. I, I can't face them. They'll werewolf me. And the court investigates and they let his dad go because his dad has super good alibis. And Pierre Dutiller, it's a little more questionable about his information, but finally they don't really find any proof that he's a werewolf and they, they let him go as well. However, Jean Grenier is tried in front of the Bordeaux Parliament in September and the Parliament goes through all this investigation. They check all of his stories. You know, I ate the fat baby. Well, they go and they ask the mom, was your baby fat? And she says, he was, he was so fat. And, you know, I saw this wood pile near where I attacked this girl. And they go and they, you know, sure enough, there's a wood pile there. His story checks out, everyone. He must be not a lycanthrope. They don't believe that he's a lycanthrope. They have to send away to get an expert opinion on that. But they say, well, he's obviously a serial killer. He's a feeble-minded public danger. and we can't put him in prison because he has no idea what he's doing. He's clearly crazy. So right. the fact that he's mentally ill is not something that 
later scholars then go and say, you know, he may have been mentally ill. That was one of the main issues. And yeah, the answer that, was that's literally at the court trial. They said he is clearly not competent to know, even if he's a werewolf, much less if he's murdering people. So we'll send him to a Franciscan monastery to be imprisoned for life. And the monks will lead him back to the way of God and their care will hopefully be better than begging in the forest, which is true. Right. Which is a result of this story that maybe people weren't anticipating in <laughs> yeah, its mercy. Right. Yeah. And so at the monastery, he meets the witch hunter, Pierre de Lancre, who has just gone down to Gascony and burned out a bunch of witches there. And he's heard that there's also werewolves in the area. And he comes and someone says, Oh, you want to talk to a werewolf? They got one locked up in the monastery of St. Michael. And he says, all right. Right. Because as werewolf lore goes, this is overlapping a lot with witch lore, right? You yeah. Right. Eat somebody in the forest who inducts you. It's not because you've been bitten. It's not a contagion. You're given a, a salve that turns you into a, a werewolf. And so in our nice modern boxes, like to think of, Witches and werewolves as being separate categories, but here those two things are, are blurring together because the even if you're a werewolf, the idea is not that you know you've caught some hereditary lycanthropy disease; it's that you've been affected by a demonic power. So right. it's still yeah. all part of the same uh, ideological uh, wheelhouse. Yeah, either you volunteered to be a werewolf or you have been cursed by Satan to become a werewolf. There's no sort of none of the 20th century modernist werewolvery is involved here. So he says that uh, the Lord of the Forest had tried to come to the monastery to get him, but the cross drove him away. So good news. Right. The monks say. And also very much part of that ideological framework. The, the monks say, yeah, when he came here, he would only eat awful and raw meat, but we've trained him up and now he's eating, you know, the simple good food of, of our monastery. Porridge. We're giving him porridge. Lovely now. porridge. Sadly, whatever was wrong with Jean basically continued. He died in 1610 or 1611. Uh, again, they didn't keep super great track. So they did what they could, but what you could in 1603 was maybe not as much as you could now. So he, he that was the end of the sad short story of Jean Grenier. He is one of the 300 known werewolf trials in early modern Europe. And as I mentioned, a lot of these trial records got burned up in the French Revolution, but there was a lot of werewolvery in France. The case of Michel Verdun and Pierre Burgot in Poligny in 1521. Thievenne Paget and three other witches also confessed to being werewolves as well as witches. You talk about that crossover. That was in 1538 in the Jura region. Gilles Garnier, no relation, in Dole. Nicolas Dumont in Chalon, who was a werewolf and a tailor. And he uh, lured uh, kids into his house. And when they... Busted up his house. They found a bunch of kid bones in his basement. It, it is a, a good occupation to have if you're ter always turning into a wolf because yeah. you can repair your clothing. Right. That, that is handy. A guy named Jacques Roulet in Angers. He shows up later in the Lovecraft story, The Shunned House, if you're curious. So that's good fun. That's in 1598, as is DeMont, as in the a family of werewolves, the Gandalon family in Saint-Claude, uh, which is the father, Georges, his sister, his son, and his daughter all become werewolves and in most of those cases, there is no sending to a monastery until you get better. They are all executed for, for being werewolves, or in DeMont's case, they're executed for having a bunch of children's bones in their house, and werewolf is the reason that is given for that to have happened. And I feel like, again, we know very little about criminal jurisprudence on the ground in, in France in this era, because, as I mentioned, civil wars are happening, and then the revolution burns a lot of those old records. But... There seems to be a very real combination of famine-induced cannibalism, because all these areas are sort of remote or, or part of the battlefield areas. There is regular old serial killing, which is just a human condition thing. And there is this, as you say, intellectual substrate that says, well, if you're doing all this horrible stuff, it must be the devil. And now we have to figure out how the devil got to you. And one of the ways the devil gets to people is he makes them think they're a wolf. And that is, you know, the, the sort of the consensus French academic opinion is that no one really turns into a wolf. That would be silly. What the devil does is he casts a spell on you to make you look and act like a wolf. So when people see you, they think you're a wolf, but that's the devil. You're not really a wolf. You're just a, a weird murderer. But you've been given a wolf skin. So yeah, from a distance, you look like a wolf. You're, in, you're cosplaying. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, Gaming-wise, this is an obvious thing that in the first two sequences of The Yellow King, you can have either in 1895 Paris or in the 1947 Continental War, you can have a resurgence of werewolfism that is caused 
not by Satan, but by Carcosa that the player characters have to deal with. And investigating this whole history and learning about it can be part of the route to finding the current werewolves, right? You find someone with a, you know, maybe it's a member of the Gandalon family who survived or uh, possibly even a a descendant of uh, Jean Grenier. Or a Dutiller. Yeah. Or since uh, we got a Grenier and a Garnier, they could have some other name that's similar. But the architect of the Paris Opera is Charles Garnier. So that's a possibility. Maybe the Phantom of the Opera is actually a werewolf. And we have Guy Endor's Werewolf of Paris, who is technically just a ghoul, not a werewolf. But yeah, there's lots of stuff that you can weave into that. I've already mentioned that Roulet shows up in Lovecraft. So if you want to pull these guys into Trail of Cthulhu or any other Cthulhu-based game, uh, Fall of Delta Green, you've got canonically a French werewolf who is also a uh, vampiric uh, shunned house monster. And that's the sort of thing that can just crop up independently. And they say, oh, this is a parallel case to Nicolas Roulet in Angers in France. Or it can be yet another one of these French werewolves that because of the nature of what was going on in France with all the alchemy and whatnot, they were able to become this sort of transcendent vampire monster and they're all connected in some horrible astral way. And in any modern horror game, you could just throw a curve at your players by having the origin of the uh, werewolf be Satan. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that can lead to a a sort of a jaunt into the conjuring universe and Mm -hmm. uh, bring in some of that imagery, which is used a lot in film, but not so much in, uh, in role-playing. Well, I I think on that note, uh, having provided many ways to use French werewolves, Uh, We've done our job for this week, but next week we'll have a whole other similar job right in front of us. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Support this podcast with dramatic and financial intensity, as do esteemed backers Ethan, Mr. E. Schoonover, Jack Ulick, Michael Curtis, Mike Marles, and Oli Tovanen. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Grab our latest design, Turn Undead, onto the security and compliance benefits of two-factor authentication. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Blue Sky, he's robindlaws.bsky.social. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>